I was having a little bit of a moment when I was on stage doing the welcome. I don't know if you noticed uh, Jessica's holding um, Kenley and Gabe's newest baby Brooks, and it's been a long time since I've been on the stage and look out and see my wife holding uh, a newborn, and I was just like, you know, it kind of took me back for a second, and I walked out and sat down and leaned over to her and kind of looked at Brooks, and I looked up at my wife, and I said, do you miss this? And she said, no. And I said, thank God, right? I was so relieved. For a minute, I thought, oh, this is going to be bad, but no, we're on the same page all as well. Listen, glad you're here. Uh, Just I thought I'd share that with you. Um, We are uh, pushing into our Easter series. One of the most important, I believe the most important event in human history is Easter. Everything that we believe and everything that we hold fast to uh, hinges on uh, the resurrection. Uh, even uh, Paul himself said in 1 Corinthians 15, if, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith, right? So everything that we do uh, from a church standpoint or from a faith standpoint really revolves around the hook of Easter, not just an empty tomb, because an empty tomb does not equate a resurrected Jesus. We have to, we have to kind of move our thought from, well, the tomb was empty. Well, the tomb can be empty all at once. As long, uh, as long as it was just empty, it was just empty. But we saw a resurrected Jesus, and he was uh, proven himself over 40 days of living and teaching and uh, being able to be taught and, and touched and, uh, and hugged and worshipped and fell down at his feet. Uh, he did all these incredible things, and this time of year, we kind of bring back to that. Uh, I think about Easter and Christmas being the two big, obvious, uh, you know, religious holidays and big moments, and, you know, the Word becoming flesh and making this dwelling among us is an incredible moment in history and something that we cannot overlook. Uh, But if that God who came to us and lived with us and lived among us, uh, lived a life with us and then stayed dead, and if he died, then really the story of Jesus would have ended with the cross, right? It it would have ended when, when the cross Uh, finally put an end to his life. But because of Easter Sunday morning, because of the empty tomb, because of the resurrected Jesus, because there are witnesses to this fact, and we have proof of that even through our New Testament as we read uh, the, the, if you've been in our Wednesday night Bible study, we've been talking through the book of Acts, the the beginning of the church and the birth of the church and the, the message of the church is something that has been called the kerygma, and I know that's a, a goofy word, but this is what it's called. And it's a three-point sermon, and you're like, this is, this is perfect. Um, you killed him, God raised him, and we are all witnesses of that. And if you read through uh, the first few chapters of Acts, you're going to see this over and over and over again, because that's all they had to say. Like, you guys killed Jesus, God raised him, and we all witnessed it. Like, we were all here, we all saw him. And that was proof enough. Because if that had not happened, then those uh, records would not have been written. And, and the people who lived through that would have refuted it and said, absolutely not, that did not happen. But they could because they knew that they saw a resurrected King Jesus. And so what's crazy about all of this, is Easter and Christmas really, is that for me at least, and I know maybe I'm, maybe I'm just a little weird, but, but Easter and Christmas are always the hardest series for me to preach. It's, it's, it takes so much um, extra. I don't know. It's, it's just different. It, it, because here's the reason why. Because we all are familiar with the story. 
Like we've grown up hearing the story of Easter. We've grown up hearing the story of Christmas. We could probably even recite both of those narratives and, and miss very few details along the way. And I think that's probably the, the, the reason why it's so uh, difficult is because we casually approach Easter. Well, we know this, right? We can, we can say, well, we did this, and then he did this, and then he did this, and then, then this happened. And we just kind of flippantly go through the series of events. And, and we, miss, we miss really the magnitude because we're so focused on what happened, we miss why it happened. We miss the why he came, and, and you know, easy answer to that is, well, he, he came for us, right? He resurrected for us. He endured the cross for us. He, he, you know, he suffered and died for us, and he rose again to provide redemption for us, and that is correct and right, and obviously right, that's, none of that's incorrect, but there's a little bit more to it than that, and that more is what I want us to talk about for the next few weeks. God was doing more through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, yes, it was for the ultimate purpose of redemption of man, but there were other things that we're doing and he was accomplishing that when we sit back and look at it, we go, wow, this is incredible. There, this has been something that's been rattling around in my head uh, for months now. I, I gotta give you guys a little bit of backstory because the first series uh, is always kind of a, a, a kind of a foundational thing. So let me tell you where this has all come from. Um, we had uh, gone to the beach this past summer, uh, my family and I, Jess and I and the boys, we got a couple of days and went to the beach and I am trying to make myself be a reader. I am, I'm not a reader. Uh, I'm a slow reader. I'm, I, I just, I know how to read. Let me just say that from the stage. I know how to read, but I am slow. Okay. I, 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 I meticulously read through things. I, I have, I'm reading, I have a pen in my hand. I underline and I write notes in the margin. And most of the time I daydream about what the author should have been saying instead of what he actually did say. Um, and so I, I'm making myself become a reader. And so uh, we, we went to the beach and I thought, you know what? I'm going to take a book. Jess always takes books to the, to the beach because she reads. I've never met anybody like it. She can, she's so fast. She can read, a, she can read a, a book, like a book book in like a day and a half. And she just, she's just running through it. And I am like struggling to get through Dr. Seuss on the other side. Like I am so slow reading. And so I thought, you know what? I'm going to take a book. And so I grabbed the book that's been on my desk that I had been trying to read for a long time that I just hadn't. And here's the subheading. Atonement and Kingdom in Biblical and Systematic Theology. <laughs> I pulled it out on the beach and Jessica looked at me and said, why did you bring that? <laughs> and I said, oh, I just, because I want to read it. And she's like, but that's not fun reading. And I'm like, well, it's not, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this book. And so sitting on the beach, I, and Jessica's just, I mean, she's just tossing books. Here it is. And she even brought her Kindle so she could download like six more. Uh, and I'm just, I finally painstakingly worked through this book. But it was worth it because here's, here's what it was all about. It was all about God establishing a kingdom through the death of Jesus on the cross. And how does that correlate within scripture and what is the you know, theology around all that and what all does that come through? So I've been thinking about this process and I thought, man, this would be so great to kind of work up and work through as we work to uh, Easter. And so, uh, and so there are some sermons, I'll be real honest, there are some sermons that I, I, can, I can kind of set down and I can, I can you know, pray through and I can really kind of figure out what God wants for me and, uh, and I can and get, it, get it together in a couple of weeks and I'm ready to go. There are some that take months to develop 
develop. And this is, uh, this is one of those series where God has just allowed me to kind of mull over this since August of last year. Over and over, coming back to and rereading parts of this book and kind of figuring out uh, how this all plays into Scripture, reading the, the Eastern narrative through Scripture and even beyond that uh, of Old Testament um, prophecy about the Messiah and how he was coming. And I'm telling you, this is one of those things I'm excited to finally be able to preach through. But there's so much to it that, that when we think about Jesus as king and, and the events of the cross, you know, it kept bringing me back to this idea of how in the world could we proclaim a kingdom for a king that's going to be killed? How can we proclaim a kingdom when its king is going to be killed? Now, if you go all the way back into the Old Testament, right, uh, we, we, we get the, the people being brought out of Egypt. Moses leads the people out of Egypt. We're all familiar with that, uh, that story. And, and as, as soon as they get settled, uh, what do they begin to ask for? They ask for a king, right? Well, what we can do is we can go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 17 when Moses is leading them out. He gives them this list of, listen, when you get to this place, when you finally get there, when you get there and you get settled and everything's exactly how you want it, you're going to want a king. And this is what the king must not do. He says that phrase about six different times in this passage of scripture. Something like it. He must not or he cannot or something like that. And he talks about all the things that the king should not be able to do. So we fast forward. People get settled. And then we live in what's the, the, the world, you know, biblical history is the time of the judges, right? The judges sit and they rule, uh, not as a king, but as just essentially what they said they were. They were a judge. They were kind of handling the, the issues within the land. Um, but the judges throughout the time span that they judged really got off track. They, they, they lost sight of what they were really supposed to be doing and whom they were really supposed to be serving. And by the time we get to the end of the book of Judges... There's an incredible verse. It's the very last verse of Judges. I've got it on the screen. Judges chapter 21, verse 25. It says this. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Now, if you know your, your history, you go, well, of course they didn't have a king. We were in the time of the judges. Like if you're in your Bible and you're reading through just even just through the, the, the books of the Bible, it's judges and then there's Ruth. You get the story of Ruth, which is incredible. And then 1 Samuel, right? 1 Samuel comes along and Samuel's the king anointer, right? We finally get Saul, we get David, you know, Solomon, and we keep going through that direction. And so at Judges chapter 21, of course there's no king. We haven't even gotten to that point in history yet, but this phrase is bigger than an earthly, physical, tangible king. What this phrase is saying is that even God is not king in Israel anymore. That the Israelites, even after they had been led out of Egypt and after the whole wilderness experience and after being settled and being able to conquer the land and being kind of, kind of taking a deep breath where they were supposed to be, they completely lost sight of what was most important. And even God was not king in their life. And I wonder, even in this moment, I wonder how many of us can kind of identify with that. Where we kind of get settled in and things are going okay and we're just kind of coasting through life and maybe we've got a good job and our marriage is okay and our kids are going okay and everything's just doing what they're supposed to be doing and, and we're just really not worried about who's king anymore. And so we turn into uh, Samuel 
Samuel chapter 8, people begin asking for a king. They start begging for a king. And, and Saul tells them, listen, no, listen, you don't understand. A king, all he's going to do is he's going to take from you. He's going to take over and over. And he says, he's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to take your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves. He's going to take your servants and your cattle and your donkey and your flocks. And he's going to end up taking you as well. And the people respond. Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 19 and 20. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. See, they thought that a physical king could solve their spiritual problem, and they were so wrong. They thought if we had what everybody else has, then we'll be like everybody else and we'll be fine. And they were so, so mistaken. The rest of the Old Testament prophets continue to speak of this coming Messiah, this coming king who's going to sit on the throne of David forever, right? We have this over and over after David finally is appointed and, and, and all is so great under David and it all kind of falls apart and we know that history. I'm not going to go through all that. The prophets after that keep saying there's going to be another. There's going to be a Messiah, the king who's going to rule and reign and redeem Israel. And then you finally turn the page into the New Testament and the coming of Jesus. And we have this, this birth narrative that is so not kingly. And we have this you know, juvenile life that is not even really recorded. And we have this kind of slow start when everybody's waiting for this big king leader. And then Jesus comes along and he begins to talk about the kingdom of God. His, his whole message is repent, the kingdom of God is near. Mark 1.15, that time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Repent, believe in the good news, right? He says that, he tells us about the kingdom belonging to the little children. Y'all remember that part of the story where the kids run up to Jesus and the disciples are trying to shoo them away? And he says, no man, the kingdom of God is theirs, he talks about the kingdom of God being a mustard seed. Matter of fact, one of the time the disciples even asked him, what is the kingdom of God like? And he said, it's like a mustard seed. And they all kind of looked at each other and went, well, that's the weirdest explanation he could have ever given. Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom. The, even the apostles, even after that, begin to continue to write about this king, Jesus, this kingdom. But again... How can we proclaim a kingdom when its king is going to be killed? And I think the hook of all that really brought me back around to the thought that the kingdom of God is less about a physical, actual kingdom and more about the king who is over that kingdom. And when I begin to look and read through scripture a little bit like that, I mean, obviously the kingdom of God is a big deal and I'm not, I'm not dismissing that. I don't want to even get into that uh, whole, we could go whole months about uh, the kingdom of God. But, but what I, I narrowed down to is like, I, don't, I need to be more concerned about who's the king over that kingdom. Because that's what we are supposed to build for ourselves, right? As, as men, 
we're kind of brought up saying, listen, you know, this is your kingdom and you're going to build it and you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna be the boss of your household. And then we get married and we realize that's not the case at all. And then we, we try to acquire the things that we're acquiring and we have, uh, you know, we have kids and we have a business and we have these things and we, we grow and we try to do all these things to kind of build our little kingdom for ourselves. But we realize that we're really not the king of anything. But surely there's somebody who's bigger than all of us, who rules and reigns over something that's bigger than anything that we could imagine. How does Jesus and his kingship tie into our real life? So my hope over the next couple of weeks is to look at this King Jesus, to see how his kingdom was established, how he was anointed king over it, and how this crucifixion really was an act of a gracious king and, and the beginning of a big story. So we're going to start this week with what I've entitled the most, the most unassuming king. You think about Jesus and, 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 and even the parts of the story that we've already told this morning, it's, it's just kind of unassuming. It just kind of comes in without this big splash, but I want to look at a very familiar passage of scripture, something that you've read probably a hundred different times, and I'm going to let a scripture just be our passage this morning. I don't have any points. I have a last thought I'm going to share with you, but that's it. We're going to read through Isaiah chapter 53. So if you have your Bible, will you turn there with me? This is a, a familiar passage of scripture, suffering servant. Many of you have probably read this uh, a number of different times, but, but hopefully what we're going to pull out this morning will teach us something new about uh, his kingship through suffering. Isaiah 53 verse 2 starts with this. He says, he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. I like the opening verses to this chapter because it really kind of gives us our thought for the day. He was unassuming, right? He didn't look the part. There's nothing that drew us to him. He wasn't from royalty. He wasn't from a, a, a rich family or predominant family. He wasn't influential. He wasn't powerful. When you, think about, when you think about kings of the Old Testament, think about King Saul, King Saul looked like a king. When you read through that in Samuel chapter 8, 9, 10, it, it talks about how, how Saul was handsome. He was tall. He was shoulders above everybody else. He fit the part of the king. When you looked at Saul, you went, man, that guy looks like a king. And then the big contrast between him and David, right? Remember David, even his own dad didn't even consider David. When, when Samuel came to, to Jesse's house, Jesse paraded all his other sons out before him. He's like, is there nobody else? He's like, oh yeah, there's the runt, but he's out in the field. Go get him. See, David didn't look the part of the king either. But when we compare that to Jesus, like there was nothing that drew us to him. There was nothing that, oh, this sets us apart. But we read in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, it says he grew in wisdom and stature, growing in favor with God and man. Like Jesus is just growing up as a, in his humanity as just a normal, a normal man. He had friendships and relationships and he learned and he lived and there was nothing about him that demanded attention. But in his divinity, he was a king. 
He was sustaining all life as he lived it. If you read Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, it says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. You see this incredible nature of him creating powers and rulers and authorities all the while being rejected by the very thing he created. When Jesus is living and breathing on earth, he's not just living and breathing in himself. He is sustaining life for everyone around him. And yet there's nothing that draws it or draws our gaze back to him and go, wow, he's the one who's in charge of all this. He's so unassuming. Isaiah said he was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. This isn't a physical sorrow. There's some people who suggest that this is a physical sorrow that Jesus carried around with him. This is a mental anguish of loving people who hated him. Of loving people who hated him. That's a sorrow that we can't begin to imagine. That's, that's, on a, that's on a level deeper than we've ever experienced. The Hebrew word for familiar in, in Isaiah is yada, Y-A-D-A, yada. And it means to know. Like he knows our suffering. He knows how you feel when you're struggling. He knows the betrayal that you felt from friends or family. He knows what it's like when people you love turn their backs on you. He knows. He's familiar. He's been there. Verse 4. Let's keep reading. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. See, he took all those feelings all those circumstances, all those emotions and baggage and all the sin that we had committed and the guilt and the shame that we feel about those sin. It says he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. My mind immediately went to the cross, right? Like he carried our sorrows. John nineteen seventeen says carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull. And we think immediately, oh man, can you imagine Jesus carrying that cross, carrying the burden and the weight of our sin and our guilt and our shame. And that's a beautiful picture. But it's not what it means. The original word for carried, your, your translation may say, he bore. That word means to carry or to take or to carry away, but it also means to lift up. See, Jesus didn't just carry our sorrows. He lifted them up. He didn't just carry the cross. He was lifted up on it. He died on it. He wasn't, he wasn't just carrying around the shame and the guilt that we had. He paid the penalty for that shame and guilt. He died bearing our sorrows. He died carrying the shame and the guilt that we hold on to. 
He didn't just share it and carry it around for a little while. He literally paid the penalty for it on the cross. And the Bible says, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. And we sat back and think, wow, God must have been angry at him. God must have been so frustrated at him. All the while, he was angry with us. It was our sin that Jesus had to bear on the cross. It was our penalty that he took upon himself. The punishment for our sin was poured out on him. And church, we miss this all the time because we say things like, Jesus died for our sins, and that's not true. We gotta stop saying that as a church. Jesus didn't die for our sins, he died for us. Our sin is what he died for, but he died for us. He didn't die for lying. He died for the liar. He didn't die for the cheating. He died for the cheater. He didn't die for, for us being able to say and act and speak and, and put ourselves in a position however we want to. He didn't die for those activities. He died for us. And we say that like, oh, God must have been mad. Look at this cross incident. It's the worst thing in the world. How mad he must have been. And he was there for us. Stop saying Jesus died for your sins. He did, but he died for you. He paid our penalty. And we look at the cross and we look at the, look at the I mean, just the, the scorn of the cross and how negative. Now we wear these, you know, we wear cross things all the time. Ladies have cross necklaces and, and we have, you know, we have these things and, and it's kind of commonplace now. But, but, but then, in his culture, people, people didn't wear that as fashion statement. It was disgraceful. It was criminal. It was punishment. And he died on it for us. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And church, I am guilty of reading these verses with the wrong emphasis on the wrong words. We read it and we say, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. When the emphasis should be, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Because of us, he suffered. Because of us, he was crushed. That word means to suffer to death. He was crushed. What king would do this? Matthew chapter 27 says this. Then Pilate released Barabbas to them. 
He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his, th- on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and they took the staff and struck him in the head again and again. And after they'd mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him and they led him away to crucify him. They literally dressed him as the king he was. Not to worship, but to make fun of him. I read this quote. Jesus reveals his kingship not by coming down from the cross to save himself, but by staying on the cross to save others. Jesus reigns by saving and he saves by giving his life. This crushing and this piercing that Isaiah describes is an act of a king saving. Verse 7 through 9 of Isaiah 53 continues to speak about uh, how he was silent and he did not open his mouth. This was fulfilled in Matthew chapter 27, Mark 14, Luke 23, and John 19. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and the rich in his death. This talks about the criminals that he was crucified with and Joseph of Arimathea's tomb that he used, that he borrowed. And then Isaiah hits us with this in verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and will prolong his days. And the, the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And I remember reading this, thinking, how could it be God's will to crush him? From the beginning, this king would suffer. It was God's plan all along. First Peter chapter 1 says this, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. But it was with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in the last time for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Did you hear that? He was chosen before the creation of the world. It was his plan all along. A plan that nobody saw coming. A plan that no one could have guessed. Who follows a crushed king? Who follows a suffering king? The Lord makes his life a guilt offering. God accepted his suffering. He accepted his sacrifice. He accepted a crushed king for us. It's the only way that it could have happened. We as humanity owed a divine debt to God that we could never repay. Our humanity limited our ability to repay God. And so God had to come. Fully human to pay the penalty for us. Fully divine to pay the penalty to God. 
satisfying both aspects of the debt that we owed, he took that on willingly for us. So how can God crush him in verse 10? Because of verse 11. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. See, from the very beginning, Jesus knew. He knew. As an infant, he would be crushed. He knew. As a 12-year-old teaching in the synagogue, he knew he would be crushed. He knew when he healed people. And every time the Bible said he had compassion for those he saw, he knew he would be crushed for them. He's going to crush him for the penalty of sin. And then he's going to allow him to see the light of life to show his power over sin. The crushing is not the end. The resurrection is the next step. The crushing is a means to the end. And I love this clause, by his knowledge my righteous servant will justify many because it tells us that Jesus knew all along. And he was more concerned about you than he was about his own crushing. What other king sacrifices himself for his people? Mishnah, the Moabite king, First Chronicles. Mishnah sacrificed his own sons in a fire to appease his God, not himself. Odin, the Viking god, sacrificed an eye so that his eye could see everything that happened in the whole world. He wasn't going to kill himself. He would take an eye. What other king in history sacrifices himself for his people, much less people who hated him? Here's my last thought. We're going to wrap up. And it's this point, and you're going, okay, Matt, I get it. This is all talking about a servant. There's no mention of the servant being a king. Like we're, we're putting some inflection in here, but look at this. This is great. Verse 12. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he's poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, at first glance, it seems kind of unceremonial, right? Just kind of reading this verse, but... If you do a little bit of digging, these words that are used here equate something so much bigger. Ellicott's commentary says this, The words great and strong are words which describe kings and rulers of man. The servant, once despised and forsaken, takes his place with them, though not in the same manner or by the same means. In other words, God giving Jesus a portion among the great is God granting Jesus' kingship. This, this phrase of God saying, I'm going to give him a portion, is, is God granting Jesus' kingship. He's going to be like all the other kings. He's going to be even bigger and better than all the other rulers and reigns of the earth. He's, he's giving his kingship. And then, then 
when it says he will divide the spoils is Jesus acting as king. <laughs> so great. In this one verse, it solidifies his title, King Jesus, and gives him appropriation to act as king of, of the Jews. He said, I'm going I'm to set him up and then he's going to rule and reign. I'm going to give him this position, and then he's going to divide spoils. He's going to be given a crown, and he's going to rule from that crown. And it's the most incredible act of all of this. It's his first act as king. is that he will bear the sins of many and make intercession for the transgressors. Isn't that incredible? As we read this and God appoints Jesus as king and Jesus begins to act as king, the first thing he does is he dies for his people. He, he loves and he bears the sins of many and he makes intercession for the transgressors. His kingship was best displayed through death and intercession for us. That church, that is a king worth following. When we approach Easter, when we approach the narrative, see the events as they unfold, read the stories through the Gospels, Hope that over the next few weeks you will do that. But read it from a standpoint of a king who's giving himself for you. I'm going to ask TJ to come up and we're going to have an invitation and just a moment for us to reflect on who Jesus is and what he has done for us. I'm going to ask if you'll stand with me. I'm going to pray. If you need to come and you need to talk about this king who lays down his life for you, I'd love to talk to you about that. If you need to talk about what it means to be a follower of a king, then I would love to talk to you about that. But maybe we just need to take a minute this morning as we just begin to push into this series as we think about how can we follow a crushed king I think the better question is how could we not after what this king has done for us how can we not follow this king Jesus let's pray father we love you and we thank you for today and we thank you for the truth of your word and how beautifully written it is and how it draws us back to remember the thought that Jesus was willing he was obedient. He was crushed. And that was the beginning of the story. Not the end. Father, a lot of us are more concerned about living life our own way and not submitting to anything or anyone. And in all reality, Father, we have a king that we've ignored that we've put on the back burner, that maybe we have taken for granted, that we have overlooked. And Father, today we say no more. Today we say we come before you and we kneel before a king who makes intercession for us and who bears our sin. 
Father, if there's somebody here this morning that needs to make a decision about who you are and who they are in relation to you, God, I pray that they ask questions. If they just need somebody to pray with them, God, I pray that they come forward. I'll pray with them. God, this is our opportunity to respond to the truth of your word. Let's not miss this. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. If you need to come, you come as TJ sings.